glad to read that uh, earlier. Uh, we're going to be looking at several different passages, but the main uh, passage we'll be looking at is the second chapter of James. One thing you may have learned in your life is that human beings are often very biased. They have opinions. They have strong opinions. They have biases. There are lots of things in the world that contribute to this. You know, our upbringing can contribute to this, the culture that we're born into, the environment that we're in. Some cultures even have whole class systems that divide people or separate people. Um, it is normal in some of these cultures where they, they might teach that some people uh, could judge others because they were born into a different class. I don't know if any of you guys, if any of you have come from cultures like that, if any of you have ever experienced that. Um, some of you may experience bias or prejudice against you here on Cyprus. You know, you might experience bias where people just because of the country that you're from will have a prejudice against you. Or they might look at you and see something different of you, your color of your skin or something else, the, the, you know, the style of your hair, and decide that they will treat you differently based on that. Well, one of the things that is an amazing attribute of God that we don't often talk about is that he is not biased. He is not partial. Um, all humanity stands before God and before him without fear, knowing that he will judge us perfectly, not according to the way that we are born, not according to the color of our skin, not according to our nationality, but instead only based on our standing before God through his son, Jesus Christ. And we all can be judged fairly uh, by God. We can all trust in that. And when we face judgment, it won't matter how much money that we've made. It won't matter how many followers we have on social media. It won't matter even you know, where we're born or what country we're born into. The only thing that will matter is our status in Jesus Christ. So today we're going to look at the second chapter of James together. And in this study, we're going to talk about the impartiality of God and his judgment and the life that we are called to live as free of bias and free of partiality. This is summed up in what we read earlier and what Ejing read, uh, which it, uh, was referred to as the royal law of scripture, which he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Christ, God has called us to be his representatives. We are representatives of the character of God on this earth. And one of the ways we demonstrate that is in how we refuse to show bias in the way that we conduct our church, in the way that we live our personal lives. Now, in the Old Testament, impartiality was a foundational part of the system of judgment that God had established. You know, earlier in the uh, service, we read from Deuteronomy. Um, judges were given commands to avoid impartiality based on their roles as the representatives of God's justice. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, it writes, God's justice is proclaimed, For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. God was an impartial God. He was a God that they could trust for that. As we read earlier in Deuteronomy 1, God gave the charge to the judges. In Deuteronomy 1, chapter 16, uh, verses 16 and 17, he said, 
And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring it to me, and I will hear it. In this, you see, God is acknowledging the limits of man's judgment. Man is created human, and so we have sin in our lives, and it is easy for us to go down the path of being biased. And so God was saying, you know, rather than judging in a, in a partial manner, if anyone knows that he is not able to judge fairly, God requests that they would bring it to God, who is the only impartial judge. From the beginning, God took the responsibility of acting with impartiality for his people and gave that to his leaders, whether they be the judges in the Old Testament or the church leaders in the, in the New Testament and in, on into today, that his appointed leaders would act in this way. Now, in the New Testament, as we were talking about earlier in the children's talk, the greatest division and potential for bias was between the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, God was determined from the very beginning to not allow this division to divide his church and to divide his people. This famous story from Acts 10, in which you see Peter having this vision uh, right before his Gentile visitors came, God had made it clear to Peter, as one of the leaders of the early church, that he should not hesitate to go to this unclean house of Cornelius. Now, chapter 10, Acts 10, in verse 28, Peter declares to Cornelius, And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now, his whole life, Peter had been taught that to enter the house of a Gentile was to defile himself. And his whole life, Peter was brought up in this world where the Romans, the Gen who were Gentiles, were the rulers over them. And so they weren't just people who were declared unclean. They were also people who were oppressors in their lives. They were people who, uh, when you thought about all the difficulties that they had to face with, whether it be high taxes or restrictions on their freedoms, they would have blamed it on the Romans. They would have seen it as these people who have this power above us, this, this authority above us, and they abuse us in this. And so they lived in this society uh, where... One, you had the, the, taught, the, the teaching that because they were holding to different practices and were not keepers of the Jewish law, they were unclean. But you also had this division that was created just by the dynamics of society, where you had people who were dealing with this, this unfair, according to them, this unjust way of living. And so this was Peter, his whole life. Uh, and here he was being told by God or shown and revealed by God that he should change his thinking towards this thing. And after hearing the story from Cornelius and going to his house and hearing the story about how not only had God revealed himself to Peter in a vision, but God had revealed himself to Cornelius as well. And hearing this, Peter proclaims in Acts chapter 10, 
verses 34 and 35. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Is there a divide like this in a culture that you came from? A cultural divide, a political divide, an ideological divide that has separated people as long as you can remember? This is true in many countries around the world, that people are divided into different classes or different cultures. Maybe it's based on religion. Maybe it's based uh, on some kind of power structure. Maybe there are different ethnic groups that are living together in the culture. That is the kind of divide that Peter is dealing with. It's not a trivial thing. But God was removing the option of judging people based on the greatest categorical divide that had existed at that time. God was saying to Peter, who was a leader in the early church, that we no longer take that categorical divide into account. They were to be one church. As I said earlier, not Jewish churches over here and Gentile churches over here, but one church united in Jesus Christ. And so James is dealing with divides as well. He's dealing with a different issue uh, in his letter when it came to bias. I'm going to read the first seven chapters of James 2 again. You're welcome to read along with me. James 2, 1 through 7. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. And but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So James is talking about the idea of treating people differently based on their wealth, their possessions. Uh, this is actually a very common bias in society. I think we We can see this in the world. You see this in many places in the world where people are treated as more valuable because of the amount of wealth that they have, the amount of money that they have. And their opinions are often held in a higher regard just because they have more money. Uh, In a world, you have people always trying to look to get ahead, wanting to desire to have a more prestigious life, to to be known as a person of respect. And wealth is often a way that people buy their way into this kind of position or respect. Uh, And we shouldn't be surprised that we find that in the world, that we find people pursuing that, or that we find in the world that people will have a bias or prejudice against people based on their wealth or based on their standing in society. But unfortunately, sometimes this enters the church as well, and you find churches. And this is not something that we should find in our churches. God does not define worth and value by the same standard as the world. He defines it differently. And in God's economy, it's about the condition of the heart. It's about faith. And that 
path is open to all people. It's not dependent on our job. It's not dependent on the amount of money we can earn. We are all equal in our ability to follow God and to pursue him, to pursue him in faith. And a church is not to judge based on these other worldly standards. We are to be impartial. We are only to look at people and judge them as they follow God. Within the church, we have a right to, to call and challenge others and to push them to pursue faith in God. But we are not to judge people based on these other standards and the things that the world does. Matter of fact, if we are to look at people in the church and we say, they are not as valuable because of the kind of work they do or the kind of the amount of money they earn or even the amount of money that they give to the church. And to make a distinction upon that, we are in clear violation of the truth of Scripture in God's word. God does not judge people based on these standards. He judges only on the condition of a man's heart in pursuit of, of Jesus Christ. And we are honored, as it says in this passage, because of our richness of faith not because of our richness in wealth or possessions. In James 2.1, as I read, he said, to show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. You could actually simplify that down even more and say that partiality and bias are incompatible with faith in Christ. They should not exist. As followers of Christ, as I mentioned earlier, we are representatives on this earth. We are people who are demonstrating, we've been called ambassadors for Christ on this earth. And we are to show the world something that is different in the standards by which we live. In the world, as I said, it's, it's common to judge others based on these superficial standards. You know, wealth is one of these things. And believers, we are to care who the person is, that every human being is a marvelous creation of God. And they are more than the sum of what we see by these these other standards. And there's more than one. That is one of the ways the gospel is transformational. As I was preparing for this message and studying, uh, I learned that the Greek verb and noun that is used in these passages when it talks about partiality actually did not exist in literature uh, before its, its reference in here. You would not have found ancient literature or the literature of this time talking about treating people in this manner. It was not common. This is yet another way that the teaching of God's word was different and transformational uh, uh, from what existed in society at that time. It was probably the norm to show favoritism in these societies, the norm to look upon someone's wealth and to judge them differently based on their possessions and their, the amount of income that they had. In your cultures, it might be similar. You might have experienced something like that as you were growing up there. You know, things in society where everyone knows people of a certain status or wealth will be treated differently than other people. In Turkish society, it's often common to depend on this. You will find people, uh, people who, are, who have a certain influence in society. They have a position in society. Sometimes it's based on their wealth. Sometimes it's based on a, on a position they have in the government or a position they have in their community. And these people don't play by the same rules as other people. They will live their lives with a special status. Uh, they'll have advantages. And people will know that they're allowed to skip lines. They're allowed to skip paperwork. They're allowed to, to bypass some of the normal rules. If you've 
gone through the process of working through your visa or working through, you know, trying to get permission from the government for certain things. You may be uh, sometimes lost in that process, finding how difficult it is to navigate these things. And especially if you, if you don't speak Turkish, sometimes it can seem overwhelming. You don't even understand what someone is trying to explain to you that you have to do. And yet, it's common in the society that people will have, they have a, a word for it called torpil, which is like, uh, could loosely be translated into influence, where if you know the right person, you can skip some of these steps. You can skip by and not have to deal with some of the, the, the annoying paperwork or some of the challenges. We were in a situation many, many years ago where uh, we were trying to get permission for something in Turkey. And we were finally told that uh, we either needed to talk to a certain person or we needed to pay money, which was basically a bribe, uh, in order to skip and to get this. And the only way we were ever going to get permission to do the thing we to do was if we could find someone with enough influence or enough position in society to overrule and give us the position, you know, the, the permission we needed, or pay somebody an illegal bribe in order to get this. And so ultimately, we weren't able to obtain uh, the permission we needed for this one thing. And so in Christian society and in our communities and in our churches, we are not to function according to these kind of standards. We are not to say, oh, you know, this, such and so has special status. So when they come in their church, they'll be treated differently than other people. Or such and such person, because of, uh, of who they are in the community, they'll be treated differently when they come into our church. Christian community. We are all leveled by the gospel. The gospel is the great leveler in society, uh, available with absolute equality to everyone who believes in the Savior. As Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this is the standard for the children of God. You know, most of the converts to Christianity that James was writing to were of a similar status. They were poor. They were Jewish heritage. Jews who converted to Christianity in their society had a special low status. You know, they were already, you had many of these places uh, in Judea and throughout the Roman Empire where Jews had a low status in society. And they bonded together in their Jewish communities in order to have, you know, some kind of community even in that low position. And what we had, especially in the early days of the church, were those who became followers of Jesus Christ were even kicked out of their Jewish communities. They were ostracized and separated from their community. And as uh, the letter of James that he wrote was actually written to many of those who had fled persecution, you know, the persecution that was brought by Saul and others against them, and they had been scattered around outside. So you had these people who were in the lowest position of society. They were, they were hated in many places. Um, and so James, four, uh, in four, verses 4 and 5, he writes about this kind of judgment uh, that they were brought against them. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? And so... He wanted them to understand, you have dealt with all of the, the, the pain of being treated 
as a lower class citizen. You've dealt with all the biases and the partiality that, that the society could bring against you. Maybe even that the Jewish community in your area had brought against you. And the challenge from James was to them, you, you don't act like that. You know, you don't, don't bring uh, this kind of partiality into our communities of faith, into our churches. And you often see that, you know, I've seen that in uh, an environment in a Turkish society where sometimes you have, you know, the, the, the big, the big muzor, the big dog in the, in the office, the one who's the most important person in the office. He treats people in his office very poorly. And so what do they do? They turn around and they want someone underneath them who they can treat poorly, who they can yell at, you know, and then, and so, you know, you might see, you know, like, uh, you know, someone who is, who, who is a uh, owner of a business, you know, they are treated poorly by the government and then they turn around and treat those working for them poorly. Maybe you are one of those people who's worked for someone like that, who is treating you poorly. And so James message to the church was the same as this, that, just because of the position you have in society and the, and the, the injustices you might face in, in the society, you are not to turn around and treat other people uh, by the same way, in the same biased way, in the same partial way, you know, bringing upon them. Biblical partiality is actually defined very, very differently. Uh, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is biblical partiality. In Christ, our partial way of showing people is to be biased towards other people, to be biased to serve other people, to love other people, to treat them uh, and count them as more significant than ourselves. But rather than to practice this kind of evil that James is talking about and dividing people up and showing favoritism to rich people over poor people. In verse 8, as I said earlier, you know, James talks about the royal law of Scripture, to love one's neighbor as oneself. In verse 10, he writes a very strong point in saying, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. This is the kind of thing that if you're coming at it from a workspace theology, you know, a workspace uh, vision, uh, it completely disrupts that view of the world. What is a workspace? It's, it's that idea of the Pharisees, you know, the idea that if I have this scale and as long as the good that I do is weighing more than the bad, then I'm good with God. This idea that as long as I can, can look at my life and say, oh, I've done more good than bad, then I'm right with God. And so what does he say here? Whoever keeps the whole law, meaning you've kept everything, but you failed on one point, that one point is actually more important than all the good that you've done. He's teaching them this principle that it isn't possible for them on their own to be good enough in order to please God. It's kind of like a, a slap in the face for these Jewish readers who, who were coming from that kind of background where they could always think, I can just do more good than bad. This legalist mentality. And the problem with legalism, when you have that kind of mentality that 
I can just do more good than bad, and that's the answer, is you can justify all your bad, right? If you think and you have that view of reality where all I have to do is do more good than bad, then you can justify any kind of evil, any kind of bad thing. You can justify any kind of bias or prejudice. In the contrast, by giving the royal law and saying, you know, to love one another, to treat uh, uh, your, your neighbor as you would like to be treated, it pushes us in the area of empathy and understanding. It pushes us to look into the lives of those around us and say, how is it that they should be treated? How would they prefer to be treated? You know, how would I like to be treated? We start to consider others, as Paul wrote, uh, as more important than ourselves. And this emphasis on guilt coming from breaking a single point of the law is also to remind us that our only hope for salvation is in Jesus, not in our ability to follow the rules or to keep the law. And this is one of the reasons that we should have no bias and we should have no partiality in Christ. We all stand condemned for our sin, no matter the sin, regardless of what it is, regardless of the amount of the sin, we are all condemned. We all stand in need of God's mercy. Mercy, you know, you, one commentator had said, it's, it's like we are all condemned. We are all inmates on death's row. We all stand condemned. And it is only, the only thing that can release us from that standing is faith in Jesus Christ. It's only because of who he is, not because of what we have done, that we can have salvation. And we can be made free from the penalty of sin, from the penalty of judgment, only through Jesus. And now we have the means, as we are free in Christ, as we are free in him, we have the freedom to share that good news with others. Now, the Jews, as I said before, they tended to have this mentality. It was of, of, you know, you do something wrong, you do a sacrifice to make it up. You find this often in some other traditions where we do something wrong, we must do a confession, and then we have to do certain actions in order to be made right with God. You find this uh, in the majority religion here where people would believe that as long as you're, the good things that you do over the course of your life will outweigh the bad, that you'll be made right. And yet, what they are telling us, uh, you know, what James is telling us and what you find in the New Testament teaching is something that's completely different. It's to say that it is completely an unbiblical idea and, and it goes against the teaching of God to believe that you can earn your way to salvation. God's standard for us as his followers is not do more good than bad. His standard is perfection. In Matthew 5, verse 48, Jesus declared, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that, if you don't understand the gospel, if you don't understand the teaching and Jesus' message for all of us, is a very discouraging message. Because we would think, how can we be perfect? How can we possibly be perfect? And yet the message of the gospel is, you cannot be perfect. You have no hope of being perfect. And that's what he was saying in James, that by one point of disobedience, you stand condemned. And so our hope is not in our perfection. Our hope is in the perfection of Jesus Christ, the perfection of his perfect sinless sacrifice, which paid the penalty for our sins. And James ends this section with a beautiful passage. I'm going to read the last two verses again. Chapter uh, 2, verses 12 and 13. 
James says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Earlier, he mentioned the royal law when he talked about how we should love each other as, as uh, we would uh, treat our neighbor as we would want to be treated. And here, James refers to the law of liberty. Now, that is another name for what I've referred to several times already in the sermon. It's a law that provides no judgment, only mercy. And why do we receive mercy? We receive mercy because of salvation we find through Jesus Christ. To say it another way, James could have said, live and act as true believers who have been saved by God's grace and who will be judged on the basis of Christ's righteousness, not of our own righteousness. And this is why we can have a law of liberty or a law of freedom. We are free from judgment. And so when you... When you look at your neighbor, when you look at your church members, you look at your people in your growth group, you don't have to say, I just need to feel a little bit better than that person. I need to be a little bit better than that person. I, you know, as long as, as that person falls and I, I'm, you know, that's the world's economy is to say, when this person falls down, I can feel better about myself because I'm not like them. But we are all the same. We are looking at them not by that bias and not by that prejudice. We look at them instead and say, we are all the same. We are all deserving of judgment. We are all deserving of the penalty for our sin. And it is only through the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that we have any hope in all these things. Jesus is what provides the perfect, acceptable payment for our sins and releases us from condemnation. Our ability to treat one another impartially and without bias is not tied in to our own human ability. You know, that's why in the Old Testament, when he was giving the command of the, to the judges to be impartial, he knew that sometimes it's difficult uh, for human beings to be impartial. And so he said to turn to God and bring it to God. And that's a good example for us today. As we look around in this world, sometimes it is hard not to judge other people. It is difficult not to look and see uh, their actions or the things that they post on social media or the things that they say to us that seem unkind or that we want to take as an unkind saying and to judge them based on those things. And so our judgment and our ability to be impartial and to treat people fairly and justly is not tied in to our ability as who we are to be perfect in our humanity. It is only tied in in our belief and our faith in Jesus Christ. We are all equally deserving of eternal separation from God in heaven. We are all stand condemned by our sin, and it is only by the grace of Jesus that we are able to have any other outcome. One commentator wrote about this when he was talking about the law of liberty. The gospel is the law of liberty because it frees those who place their faith in Jesus Christ from the bondage, judgment, and punishment of sin and brings them ultimately to eternal freedom and glory. It liberates us sinners from falsehood and deception and from the curses of death and hell. Even more marvelously, it frees us to obey and serve God, to live faithfully and righteously according to his word, 
and by the power of his indwelling spirit. And it frees us to follow our Lord willingly out of love rather than reluctantly out of fear. In every sense, it is the royal law of God, the divine and wondrous law of liberty. And James ends with this warning about showing mercy to others. We who have known the great mercy of Jesus Christ are to be merciful. And this is the mark of us as the church. We are different. We are called to be different. We are called to be salt and light. We are called to be you know, that salt that gives season to the world that we live in. We are called to be that light that shines out into this dark world. This world is not changing. There is still going to be bias. There is still going to be prejudice. We're going to still deal with these challenges as we interact with the world. And yet we are called as ambassadors of the goodness of God's grace to share and stand apart as different in this world, to show that we are not people who are guided by these prejudices and biases, that we as a church are different. We are agents of God's mercy, the mercy that we have been shown. And as we act in this mercy, as we go out and show mercy where the world would only bring judgment and condemnation, then we can proclaim the gospel that not because of who we are and how good we are and how capable we are as people, but because of what a wonderful and capable and good God that we serve. And that is what enables us to live that life and to proclaim the grace, love, and mercy of Jesus Christ to this world that needs it so desperately. And so that's my challenge to you today, that you would hold on to the truth and the glory that we serve an impartial God, a God that we can trust. We can trust his judgment. We can trust who he is. And because of who, that is, who he is and because of what he's done for us, we can go out into our communities as agents of change, as agents that will live differently, people who will stand before our communities and point to Christ that whatever good is in our church, whatever is good is in our life, is not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And so I challenge you today to take that out. Let's spend some time and a moment in prayer together as we consider these things.